Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and do we have some good conversations and great stories for you this week? Shut Up and Wrestle will truly be living up to its description for this episode number 61, featuring my super special guest, the Olympic strongman, the world's strongest man, Ken Patera. Now, I'm going to explain how that happened, how that went down. It's a little bit unusual, a little bit different from my usual conversations. We'll get to that in a second. Just want to check off a couple of boxes here, things I'd like to briefly mention. Inside the Ropes magazine, issue number 30 is now available with Cody Rhodes on the cover. I believe in the UK, they're already up to issue 31, but I'm pretty sure here in the US, like if you go to Barnes and Noble, you would probably still find issue 30, but it doesn't matter because they're all available at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. But issue number 30 with Cody Rhodes on the cover, it has the article that I did all about the return of Vince McMahon to power in WWE. I've been doing a whole series of these McMahon family articles on Shane, on Triple H, on Vince, multiple articles. This is the latest one. I'm very proud of it. On the cover, it's called The Return of the Mac, and it is in issue number 30 with Cody Rhodes on the cover, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. Now, this connects to the interview that I did with Ken Patera. I'd like to mention a few things about Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon, which I'm working on at the moment been doing a lot of interviewing, a lot of research, but also a lot of interviewing. That's the phase I'm in right now. I recently talked to Holly Gilsenberg, the daughter of the longtime WWF president, Willie Gilsenberg, talked to uh, Tony Gurria. A lot of people lately I've been getting a hold of, even fans, you know, from back in the 1960s, people that watched Gorilla wrestle, people that worked behind the scenes in the WWF on primetime wrestling and things like that. And so one of the people that I reached out to was Ken Patera, because, of course, as we mentioned in the interview here, they, he worked with Gorilla quite a bit. In fact, he retired Gorilla in that famous August 1980 Philadelphia Spectrum match. So I reached out to Ken. Originally, you should know that this interview was not really intended for public consumption. It was meant to be an interview for the purposes of research for the book. <laughs> And about midway through it, I realized this is something special. Uh, as anyone who's listened to an interview with Ken knows, he is something special. He is one of a kind, a true pro wrestling character, very colorful guy in his attitude and language. And I quickly realized this had to be, it just had to be a podcast episode. So of course, I did get his permission to do that. I got his blessing, but I do want to mention a couple things 
Of course, uh, as I said, I did not intend this to be a podcast interview for Shut Up and Wrestle. So you may notice that the audio is not quite up to my usual snuff. I did not have all of my usual audio equipment that I would use for an episode. Um, you may notice a little bit, particularly in my audio, that it's not quite as as good as it usually is. However, this is still more than listenable and enjoyable, and the content makes it completely worth it. I hope you'll agree when you listen. I just could not pass up the opportunity to share this with you. And of course, I also have to mention with it being Ken Patera, this almost goes without saying that the language restrictions for this podcast that I would typically apply are null and void this week. Put the kids to bed and cover your virgin ears if need be, because Patera pulls no punches. And believe me, it's worth it. You are going to flip over this interview. You're going to love it. You're going to hang on every word that he says, just as I was. Now, I didn't get a chance to do a proper introduction for Ken for this conversation. It kind of just starts in the middle, as you'll hear. And, and in fact, it's right in the middle of Ken telling an amazing story about a very young Jim Cornette in Memphis when he first met him over 40 years ago. And it kind of just jumps right in, as you'll see. So just by way of introduction here, for those of you that have been living under a rock for half a century, of course, Ken Patera was an Olympic weightlifter in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, and he uh, set a lot of records in shot put, in weightlifting, and other events before joining the wonderful, wacky world of pro wrestling in the 70s and really becoming one of the greatest heels of all time. Wrestled all over the place, especially... With regards to this interview for the for WWF fans, he was there in the uh, late 70s and the early 80s as a heel. He wrestled Bruno San Martino, Bob Backlund, you name it, wrestled uh, Hulk Hogan in, in later years, and then Andre the Giant came back in the late 80s, as we touched on, as a babyface when he was released from prison, and that was used as part of his storyline. But And that's how I, incidentally, first remembered him as a young wrestling fan. So this interview touches on a lot of that stuff on a truly amazing and Hall of Fame career. And of course, don't get me started. This man clearly belongs in the WWE Hall of Fame. That needs to happen. But as you'll see, what happened here with this conversation is, you know, it was meant to be just talking about Gorilla Monsoon, but uh, it went in, a, in many, many different places. And Ken was, was in a very talkative mood, and I was most appreciative. And he was willing to really get into the weeds and into so much detail about his career, his opinions on things in the business, his thoughts, his memories. Uh, there's a lot in here about Gorilla Monsoon and his memories of working with, with Gorilla, but it's far from being all Gorilla. There's a lot of other um, very, very interesting, fascinating, and hilarious bits here talking about the Super Bowl of wrestling in Florida, talking about being Intercontinental Champion and Missouri Champion working with Bob Backlund, working with superstar Billy Graham, working in Memphis with Andy Kaufman. I mean, we got to so many different things here. So I'm going to just shut up and take you to that amazing conversation. As I said, keep in mind, the conversation begins in progress. I hope you enjoy it, and I'm going to take you to it right now.
Yeah, Jimmy Cornette, first time I met him, I think it was like 1982 or 81, something, yeah, for over 40 years ago. But anyway, uh, 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 Jerry Lawler had called me and asked me if I'd like to work a program with him down the Mid-South Coliseum in uh, Memphis. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, I'm up here working for Ganya right now in the AWA. He says, oh, yeah, I know. Uh, and anyway, uh, Jimmy was running around with a fucking tennis racket acting totally fucking crazy. And uh, I needed a ride from Memphis up to Nashville, I think it was. And so uh, Lawler says, well, I'll just jump in with uh, Jimmy Cornette. He'll run you up there. So anyway, uh, we're on the highway. We're going. I said, Jimmy, I need some fucking beer. He says, I know exactly where, where we can get beer. So two minutes later, we pull off the freeway. And uh, that was... Had I ever been in Tennessee? Oh, yeah, I'd been in Tennessee a few times. But anyway, uh, we get up to this little town, and Jimmy says, you want to stay here tonight or go all the way to Nashville? I said, let's go all the way to Nashville. And he was just tickled about that. I guess he, he had some friends up there or something. So anyway, we pull in this uh, motel. It was about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. He says, uh, I have some friends staying here. So we go down this one room at the motel. There had to be six or eight guys in that fucking room because they weren't making no money. I mean, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks a, a night. Right. So he introduces me to them all and everything. It's Campatoya. Everybody knew who I was anyway, because I had just left the WWF and I was up in the AWA at this time. So all that stuff was televised. So, and the kids that were wrestling, they were just breaking in, so they were fresh. So they were still wrestling fans, right? And, um, just a minute. Yeah. Jimmy was too. He was a he was a fan. He was a photographer before he was doing any of that stuff. Oh shit! He was a big time fan. <laughs> you know, he on the right up to Nashville. He'd ask me all kinds of questions about you know how, how do you start wrestling? You know, ask me about going to the Olympic Games and weightlifting and everything. But anyway, I, I really liked the kid so. Every time I went back to Memphis, if I was going to stay over an extra day or two or three, uh, I'd al he'd always drive me around, and uh, so uh, that that that's how I met Jimmy Cornette. Yeah, and then, then that's when I was working that program with Lawler, right? And uh, we finally. Uh, the big blow-off was Andy Kaufman. In Lexington. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a year or two later, but whatever. I, 
I don't remember exactly what it was. Did you remember when I uh, had Kaufman as a tag team partner? I I mean I've I I don't remember it. I I was a little young, but I've seen it. I know about it, and I know that he it was you and him as a handicap against Lawler. So basically, he'd just be yeah. hiding behind you and having you do all of yeah. the work for him. Right. Yeah. Perfect. What What was yeah. that like? What a What a madman. Oh yeah, we had uh, Jimmy uh, um, Jimmy Hart as our manager. And so there's actually three against one. Can you imagine Jerry the King Lawler beat all three of us? And I, I was hired by Andy Kaufman to get rid of that evil uh, Jerry Lawler. And it was, uh, I, I loved that angle. You know, yeah. Uh, but- Lawler set it up perfect. And... Uh, well, so, let's talk about the gorilla. Yeah, let's do that because uh, this is so. This is a book that I just started working on. I I talked to Kevin Sullivan. Um, I'm talking to a ton of people, but I just started uh, interviewing people, um, and so I, I figured I had to talk to the guy who retired him. You know what I mean? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he, he would mention that every time you were on TV, and he was calling your match. This is the man. Who put yeah. me out of wrestling? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, go on. Kevin Sullivan. I had his first match on TV there in the WWF. Um, God, where was that? I think that was Hamburg. Okay. Hamburg. The first on uh, we would uh, do TV in Philadelphia. At I think the Fourth Street Arena or Sixth Street Arena, whatever they called it, they tore tore it down a hundred years ago now. But uh, anyway, uh, and then I then we uh, drive up to Hamburg, um, stay over. I think it was in Allentown at the Abraham Lincoln Motor Inn. It was, oh shit, <laughs> those were those were fantastic. I mean, it was uh, Party Time USA, I'll tell you that. Bet. Uh, girls, 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 everywhere. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I worked with Kevin Sullivan. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I was always thinking, I said, God, this guy's a little short for... Uh, you know, to make it big time. I mean, he was just breaking in. He was a rookie. Right. That little bastard had a brain on him. And uh, that's what I always appreciated. And then I realized, uh, you know, that this guy is going to make it, you know, he'd be a manager or a booker or something. But uh, he was a hell of a performer. Yeah. You know, and yeah. He told me a story, you know, because uh, you're talking about what a great booker he became. He told me a story about how even back then he was one time Vince Sr. caught him looking through his book, like just trying to see how he did it. And he thought he was going to get in a lot of trouble, but he wound up sitting him down and saying, hey, you know, I can show you how I do it. And he showed him everything. Yeah. Yeah. Vince uh, Sr. was that type of guy. 
Yeah, he was uh, he was a real diplomat. Yeah. So when you were there, and I mean, I was I was just looking over your your career and everything just before I did this, just to make sure I knew what the hell I'm talking about. But you were yeah. there basically uh, throughout a lot of years where Gorilla was a very important part of the locker room, late seventies, early eighties. So what was it? What was he like back then in the locker room? Like what kind of a of a role did he play? Well, he had a, a percentage of the WWF. I can't remember what his percentage was. It was 5 or 10%. I think it might have even been 20, actually. Was it 20%? Okay. I stand corrected by somebody that's writing a fucking book. <laughs> so I better pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I, yeah, twenty uh, percent sounds good. And then, uh, of course, Phil Zacco had a piece, and uh, um, got who? Got who? Arnie Scoland. Yeah, Arnie Scoland was uh, his right hand man. And then uh, Ginsburg, Willie Ginsburg, had a piece. Uh, he lived in an old rundown uh, hotel over in uh, New Jersey. That was, uh, I think that hotel was full of pimps, whores, and uh, drug dealers. But, uh, you know, he was in his late 70s, early 80s at the time. I talked to I, his daughter yesterday, actually. Huh? I talked to his daughter, Holly, yesterday. Really? Yeah. How is she now? Oh, I think she's about 70. Um, he he adopted her when he was in his 50s. So he, you know, this, so she, uh, um, it, he was already pretty old by the time he was raising her. But yeah, she's about yeah. 70. Yeah, I, I, I never got to know Willie that well. But when he was running around with Phil Zacco over in Hamburg and Allentown and those places, I, I had lunch with him a couple times, of course, with Vince McMahon and uh, everybody. You know, I, even Gorilla Monsoon sat in on a few luncheons uh, because they were having, you know, the meetings of the mine, you know, the owners. Right. Uh, how, yeah. How involved was Gorilla in kind of like the decision making? Would he really uh, be a, a part of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, when Gorilla was uh, still wrestling, he still had a two or three towns that he was promoting in uh, uh, eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Uh, I can't remember which towns. They, they were smaller towns. But shit, I headlined uh, every one of them, and we sold out. So he knew how, how to promote. And uh, he was a great booker. He yeah. really was. Yeah. Uh, especially when he told me, he says, Kenny, we're going to wrestle an igloo over in uh, Pittsburgh tonight or tomorrow night. I'd like you to retire me. <laughs> I said, what do you mean retire? He says, well, I'm going to quit wrestling and just go in the office. And uh, uh, I said, well, what, just promote and book? Yeah, yeah. And I can't be wrestling, you know, three, four nights a week and, and do that too. 
And I said, okay. So uh, I had, uh, we did his retirement match. And you know, it was all built up. If I can't beat Ken Patera, I'm going to retire, blah, 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 blah. So we're over there, and the finish was I hit him with the ring, ring bell. And uh, he gaffed himself and fucking bleeding like a pig. And, uh, I mean, he really did a job. And about a month later, we do the same match in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. Completely sold out. <clears throat> because if, if Monsoon can't beat Ken Patera, he's going to retire. So we did a, a match that was almost like that. We had damn near had a riot. Fucking cops were throwing people off me. I'm trying to get back to the locker room. Monsoon's out there in the ring. Boom. Every time his heart beat, a big fucking gusher would come out of his forehead. I swear to God. I I said, uh, I'm thinking to myself, that's the best blade job I've ever seen. <laughs> so anyway, this girl I was dating, uh, she was from Pennsylvania. And I wound up marrying her a couple of years later. And uh, so anyway, uh, I get back to the corridor, you know, from the ring. That was sold out. It was almost 20,000 people slammed in that place. And it doesn't hold 20,000, I'll tell you that. I think it's like eight or 19,000. Yeah. But for wrestling, you know, they can put them in the aisle and put them all, all over the place. So anyway. Uh, here comes Monsoon, you know, about a minute behind me. He's still bleeding every time. <laughs> what a bleed job. So anyway, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she comes over to me, looks at Monsoon, looks at me. How could you have done that to that poor man? Oh, she was so pissed off. I I said, hey, I'll, I'll explain to you later. Because I never smartened her up. Oh, wow. I never smartened that goofy bitch up until after we were married. You know, and, that, and so a couple of years after that, I told her, but you know, she asked me about that poor man. Wow. Soon I, I so I told her. You, know, you kept her in the dark for years, years. Oh yeah. Uh, hey, I was kayfabe all the way back in those days. Right. Yeah, you know, I didn't know any shit about it, you know. Well, Gorilla had that was Gorilla's license plate, kayfabe. Yeah, was it? Yeah, it said his license plate, New Jersey. Oh, yeah, plate. I remember. I remember that he, he drove a Cadillac, right? Yeah, I think he also drove a Lincoln too for a while. I think he kind of had both at different times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh... McMahon Jr., the guy that's running it now, Vince. Yeah. He had a big uh, Lincoln. Okay. And, oh, yeah, because I know that because we, we he used to drive me up and down the East Coast all the way from Washington, D.C. up to Bangor, Maine. And, uh, oh, shit, I think one time we made a trip over to uh, uh, Pittsburgh uh then coming back we had allentown and you know uh all kinds of places but uh i i went with him quite a bit because he always wanted me to go to the tv studios 
with him in whatever town he was, you know, uh, promoting. And the way we got to Bangor, Maine, we drove up there, and first place we stopped was the TV studio, and uh, because he was opening that area up, yeah. you know, Dad gave him permission to do it. And this is back in like '77. It might have been '78. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, yeah, he, he, he loved uh, taking me around, introducing the world's strongest wrestler, you know, Kempatera. He was in the Olympic Games. He was in the uh, Pan Am Games. He was in the World Championships, you know, for weightlifting. One national championship. Won everything. Right. And so, I, you know, I was his uh, poster boy. And, they, really, uh, they really protected you there. I, I noticed that you you almost really never lost at all. I mean, hardly ever, if ever. Maybe to Bruno, and that's about it. Yeah, well, uh, I lost a lot. And, well, not getting uh, not getting pinned. I mean, maybe yeah, I, I forgot. Or the referee would stop the match or something, but not getting pinned. Right. I got disqualified all the time. Right. I was a champion of disqualification. <laughs> well, that's how they got around beating you. You know, I mean, yeah, pretty much uh, Bruno and I think maybe Pedro might have been the only or Backlund. Uh, did Backlund pin you? I think he did. Uh, boy, we did some count outs. Yeah. Match stopped because of too much blood. And yeah, we, we, we did. I, I wrestled Backlund a lot. And I think I might have wrestled Backlund more than I wrestled Bruno. But I, I wrestled Bruno three times in every major arena. Wow. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And uh, I think I, I yeah, I, I think I did the same with uh, Backlund. Definitely yeah. the garden. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Backlund. I had a question about that, something I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if it relates to Gorilla or not. But I also noticed in, like, late 1980 when the Sheik, when the Sheik's territory was dying out, Vince sent some WWF guys out there to work a couple of Kobo shows, a couple of the last ones that Sheik did. And I yeah. saw that you were on the last one, the very last show that Sheik did at Kobo. They had you and Backlund on that card. Do you remember that show? Uh, no, I don't. No. Well, it was you and Backlund in Kobo Arena, but and they also had Andre there and the Samoans and a few WWF talents out there. I was, The only reason I'm asking is I was curious if, because I know Monsoon would sometimes be like the representative, like the person that the McMahons would send if they were trying to open up a new territory or a town or whatever. So I was curious if Monsoon maybe went out to Kobo to that show. You know, I, yeah, you know, come to think about it, I vaguely uh, remember that. I, I'll tell you a little side story there. Uh, when I was in college at Brigham Young University, we had uh, uh, national uh, NCAA uh, track and field championships indoor games at Kobo Arena. First time I was ever there. That would have been about 1967, I believe. And uh, I was a shot putter. 
And uh, so the national championship, should do I have a chance to win this thing? I said, yeah. Anyway, I won the national indoor shopper championship in Kobo Arena. Oh, okay. And now I'm wrestling there with Bobby Backlund, you know, 10 years later. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. How, how often does that happen? <laughs> yeah, that, that is a funny uh, way that it turned out. And even 67, when you were have when you were there, you know, in a non-wrestling capacity, that's also when the Sheik was doing his best business at Kobo. Yeah, right. Yeah, we were uh that place for the track and field championships, that place was sold out. Now, uh, getting back to the, the the monsoon at the spectrum and the retirement and all that, do you know why he picked you to be the one to do that? Did he tell you why he wanted you to be the person? Yeah, because they were pushing me at that time. And uh, I was the top heel in the territory. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted everything to go right. And uh, I had uh, worked with Bruno in Pittsburgh. We sold the place. We sold out every place. And for, well, I'll give you an example. We were in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. or Baltimore, Baltimore, maybe. Phil Zacco ran those two towns. So I said, Phil, I said, looks like we have a sellout tonight. He says, no. I said, well, how close are we? He said, I have three tickets left. <laughs> he said, Phil, I said, that's a fucking sellout. Jesus Christ. Three. Yeah. But yeah, Phil Phil was that way. He was just a little little short Jewish guy. But uh not, he had never gotten married. Oh. And she, yeah, he was in his late sixties at the time, I believe. Or mid sixties. So anyway, some woman talked him into marrying him, or marrying her. But uh, and you know now Phil wasn't a ladies' man or anything. You know he was strictly business, very very wealthy, very wealthy. So anyway, the marriage I heard, you know, from what I hear, uh, only lasted a year or two, and uh, she went on her way and. Phil was happy again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, Monsoon uh, and I were good friends. And uh, uh, I always accused him of uh, cheating while we played cribbage or poker or, you know, rummy or, you know, it didn't matter what it was. I said, Monsoon, I'm looking at you deal off the fucking deck, uh, off the bottom of the deck. And no, 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 no. no. I, I, how can you uh, possibly say that? And he had a way of shuffling the cards when it was his turn. And uh, it was, uh, it wasn't real obvious, but I, I knew, <laughs> you know, that, you know, that, yeah. So anyway. Uh, Great. Uh, yeah, Andre the Giant was a hell of a cribbage player. I know. I've heard that. I've heard that from a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I used to play. Oh, when he wasn't playing rummy, uh, 
or cribbage with Arnie Skolan in the locker room, I I was usually uh, uh, his opponent in the cribbage uh, wars. Yeah, he, he was good. Yeah. So the the shows at the Spectrum did Gorilla was that his building to run? I believe so. Yeah, I've I, yeah, I've heard that it was, and I've heard that he even helped. He was the one that helped get it on cable TV on uh, Prism. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because you know he didn't live very far from Philadelphia. Yeah, right across the river there. Yeah, yeah, the there in New Jersey. Yeah, he he invited me over for dinner. Oh, I don't know, three or four times. You know, whenever I was wrestling down in the. Uh, South Jersey or wrestling at the Spectrum, and uh, he was a very gracious man and very very intelligent. He was really a, a, a piece of work. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what was it like going to his house? Fun. It was a lot of fun, and his wife would always fix a big meal, a big Italian meal. And uh, God, it was, it was just, you never left there hungry. <laughs> you never left there sober. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Monsoon wasn't a big drinker. You yeah. know, uh, matter of fact, I don't remember him ever having uh, uh, hard, hard liquor. You know, he, he might have had a beer or two. But yeah, he wasn't a, a a drinker at all you like to eat though i bet oh god he could put away the groceries i'll tell you that yeah his wife was a hell of a cook yeah but he was up to 400 pounds right uh a few times you know but he was tall i don't remember exactly he was six five yeah i think i know they build him as six six i think he was probably six four six five like that you would know yeah. better than me, that's for sure. Yeah, he was at least 6'5". He's a lot taller than me, I remember that. Well, no wonder you never left Hungary. I mean, if, if Maureen was used to cooking for him, you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, she uh, she used to cook some fantastic meals, I tell you. I heard yeah. Gorilla was a pretty good cook, too. Yeah, well, I didn't experience that end of him. But I that I, I heard the same thing, you know. Yeah. And was it true what they say, you know, because like the they always called it the gorilla position, that spot where he would sit. Did he really stay in that area by the curtain, like everybody says? Oh yeah. He watched all the matches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He watched them all and uh make sure that uh nobody fucked up or nobody was uh out there uh loafing. You know that that that's one thing that really pissed him off. Yeah. If somebody would go out there and dog it, you know, and you know, not not really put a hundred percent into the match, you know, uh, he didn't have to worry about that with Bruno or me or Mayor and Backlund. I mean, we're we're like buzzsaws, you know. We were always moving, you know, always giving the fans uh, their money's worth, and so yeah. Oh. If somebody kind of didn't do a great job, would he? Would they hear it from him when they came back through the curtain? Oh, you better believe it. Oh, yeah. Fuck, yeah. 
I mean, he, you know, especially in the shows that he promoted. Yeah. Well, that was his livelihood. You know, he couldn't uh, book a show and uh, book all the talent in there and then have somebody go out and fuck it up. You know, he, he, you know, he, he was definitely, uh, he would, uh, adhere to a very strict schedule. And he let everybody know about it in the locker room. And, you know, that the locker room is where, uh, everything got done. Tell you the truth. Right. And was, could you, was there anybody that, well, I don't know. I don't know if you, if you want to throw anyone under the bus or anything but can you think of anybody or any time when he really had a problem with somebody's match and really let them know you know a couple times um god i can't remember uh one i remember with ivan putsky uh and i i can't remember exactly the the situation there yeah, I, 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 Ivan was a good performer. He'd go out there, but sometimes he'd go out there and he'd just, you know, give a double bicep flex, and then uh, you know people would all, sh- you know, holler and hoot and everything. But then, you know, after doing that, sometimes Ivan, you know, wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, initiate anything. So if I was wrestling Ivan, you know, fuck, I'd fucking maul him. I'd be all over him, you know, if he was doing that stuff. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, you got to keep moving in some capacity, yelling at the people or, you know, jumping out of the ring. You have to be doing something all the time. You just can't stand there. You know, especially when you're out on the floor, you know, you're moving, you're doing this, you know, pick up a chair, throw it in the ring, you know, you know, then you try to get in the ring and then have your opponent grab the chair and come and, you know, threaten to hit you on it, hit you in the head when you're on the apron. So then you jump back down on the floor, you know, stuff like that. Finally, you come over, you grab his leg you know pull him out on the floor you know always be doing something and uh so i i uh i got over like a million bucks because i was always moving always doing something i never just stood around you know unless i was selling uh uh incredible move or something like that you know and they had you with the grand wizard right most of the time you were there well, yeah, uh, I started off with Lou. Oh, uh, so Lou was my uh, first manager, and uh, but you know, Lou would get so fucking drunk. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I, I he was hardcore alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, I like my alcohol, but I never drank before a match. Yeah. Twice, I think I did. <laughs> Twice well, out of how many times? That's fine. Yeah, I, 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 I was out in Las. I'll tell you a quick story. I was out in Las Vegas, and uh, at uh, Caesar's Palace, we were all staying out there. And so uh, I walked into the, the lobby bar. It was about nine, nine thirty in the morning, 
And uh, so uh, I think it was Lou Albano, Dino Bravo, Freddie Blassie, Andre, and his manager at the time, Frank Belois. You, you remember Frank? Sure. Yeah, he okay. was Andre's handler for years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a long time. And so, uh, and Dick Murdoch was there, Captain America, uh, Dick Murdoch. And uh, uh, we started drinking because Murdoch challenged Andre to a beer drinking contest. Oh, no. Hey, baby, I can drink more beer in an hour than you can. That was the bet. Well, Andre says, okay, because we had only had one or two beers at that time. It was only like 9.30 in the morning. So uh, the bartender, I can't remember who asked the bar. I think Murdoch went up to the bartender and says, hey, I'm going to have a beer drinking contest with Andre. Can you make sure that when whenever we're empty, uh, bring them over to the table? Because we were the only people in that bar. It was a lobby bar, you know, down the lobby. Uh, nice place. Good place to drink beer. And uh, one thing led to another that we're, we all got into the contest oh, uh, after a couple of beers. Well, at the end of the uh, day, it was like 7.30 at night when we finally had our last beer. And uh, Andre drank 116 beers. And I know that because I asked the bartender that they had these little plastic uh, tubs that people would use for their tokens or their money at the slot machines. So he had a, a ton of them behind the bar. So he wrote our name. I gave him the names. He wrote the names on all the uh, plastic. Uh, tubs and uh i think murdoch had like 40 i had 44 uh after about 12 loose switch back to vodka oh no and that that, that was his choice and uh, dino bravo drank uh, you know like 40 frank valois took second now this guy was like 65 at the time and I think he drank 60, 65 beers. Oh, you're trying to kill this man. I, I know. Well, he was a big guy. He was like 6'4", 350. What was the time frame? How, and how long? How much time? Well, 930 in, yeah, 9.30 to 7.30 at night. Oh, so all day. Oh, fuck, yeah. It was all day. Yeah, we were just, fuck. I, I drank 44. And uh, so I took third. And uh, the, 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 I, I, believe it or not, I felt pretty comfortable because it took, and we ate, we, we, you know, we were having uh, uh, those uh, small luncheon steaks they had down there at the time. So uh, we were eating and drinking, not eating a lot, but just enough, you know. Just <laughs> enough so you don't get sick, right. Yeah, all that alcohol. And you worked that night? Yeah, I worked with Andre that night. Oh, my God. Drank 116 fucking beers. Anyway, we get over to Tom 
Thomas Mack Center there on the campus of uh, UNLV. And the uh, place was sold out. And uh, it was a televised uh, segment. It, it didn't go live at that time, but it went live you know, on, on the weekend, I think it was. Yeah, you know, within days. And uh, 19,000 people in that place. And all of us had drank all that fucking beer. So we didn't get to the show. We, I, I finally got a hold of the guy that drove the van for uh, Caesar Palace, and he drove us over. And we all piled out of there, you know, fucking stumbling like a bunch of fucking idiots. And so we pull up to the back of the Thomas Mack Center, and uh, we walk in. And I said, fuck, is anybody here? Well, it was sold out. There's 19,000 people in the arena. And uh, because there, nobody was making any noise or anything, I said, fuck, I don't know if anybody's even here. So we get in the locker room. Arnie Scullin was the uh, event manager that night. Where in the fuck have you guys been? Don't even answer. I know where you've been. I was told that you guys were all at Caesar's Palace drinking beer all day. I said, well, don't blame us. You know, blame uh, dirty uh, uh, Dick Murdoch for that. I said, he's the one that uh, instigated it all by challenging Andre to drink in a beer contest. And he says, well, what's your excuse? I said, well, we, we all joined in. I said, how couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that that's how that went down. I had a hell of a match with Andre that night. Really? Uh, yeah. Skolan asked me, I, he says, can you guys get 14 minutes? I said, well, ask the big guy, you know. Right. And Andre said, yeah, yeah, not, no problem. So anyway, we went out. I think we went 16 minutes. And uh, because back in those days, well, I'm sure it's still the same way. But when you're doing a TV show, you know, that, or a show that's going to be on TV, you had to keep the minutes right. Right. And oh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had a hell of a match with Andre. I don't think we even touched each other for the first 10 or 12 minutes. As long as you're and, doing something, like you said. Yeah. Right? That damn near had a riot. <laughs> that's amazing that's great but you know the the reason i mentioned the wizard is because i was i've been watching some you know on on peacock on the wwe network they added a bunch of episodes of wwf wrestling from about 1980 they're now on there and you're on some of them with the wizard and i think it's funny because they had him as your manager and he's kind of talking for you or your mouthpiece or whatever but it seemed like you you could pretty much do that on your own. It didn't seem like you really needed him. You were a good talker. Yeah, that's true. But that that's that was the format back in those days. They had Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard, and uh, Freddie Blassie uh, as managers. So they always wanted to uh, keep them involved. You know, as long as it didn't take away from the wrestlers. And well. The, the reason I wound up with uh, 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 Ernie was because Lou was drunk all the time. Right. And he 
just, you know, like when we were doing uh, TV shows out of Philadelphia at the Market Street Arena. And then, you know, over in um, Hamburg. I can't remember the name of that. Uh, the Fieldhouse? Field. Huh? Hamburg Fieldhouse, right? What's the name? I think it was just the Hamburg Fieldhouse. It probably had yeah. some other name, too. That's but... it. That was it. Yeah, Hamburg Fieldhouse. Yeah. And those two places were always sold out for TV. And uh, so, that you know, they weren't big arenas. But, you know, they were big enough. You know, they hold, you know, 2,500, maybe 3,000 uh, people. And, uh, yeah, we, we would uh, have a good time. Yeah. And um, what was I going to ask you about that? Oh, um, so the idea, I guess, was that all the heels would automatically have to have a manager. Because I noticed even with, like, superstar Billy Graham, he's another one who had Ernie with him and didn't really seem like he needed anybody to do the talking for him, that's for sure. No, no. Superstar was great on the mic. Uh, no doubt yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, around, speaking of Superstar, around that time, here's something else. I, if you if you have any memory of this, um, when they did the Super Bowl of wrestling down in Florida, when Superstar Graham went down there and it was him against Harley Race, the supposedly title unification, right, the two world champions, you yeah. were on that show, and I think you wrestled Gorilla on that show. No, I wrestled uh, Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes, that's right. My mistake. Sorry, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, you know what I'm thinking? Gorilla was the he was the referee for the main event with Harley yeah. and and yeah. Billy Graham. Yeah, yeah, we did it in the Orange Bowl. Right uh, outside, it was raining cats and dogs. Man, I've seen it. Yeah, the locker room was uh, in the end zone area. Uh, and like the football players, when they run off the field for halftime or coming out uh, to start the game, they come out. We came out the same uh, area. So we come out, and it was fucking pouring down rain when Dusty and I went on. Right. And uh, so we had a walk from there all the way to the 50-yard line. And... The, uh, you know, that was a uh, natural grass field oh, the, wow. and mud, the mud and the water. There had to be four or five inches of water that we had to slop through. And uh, then, you know, to get to the ring, we get in the fucking ring. Of course, with all that rain, the canvas was slick as cat shit. I'll tell you, I, I got in, I damn near fell down. Uh, because it was so slick. So here comes Dusty after me. And uh, people, you know, I we didn't have a lot of people there. I don't know, 20,000, 30, maybe 30,000. And that was a big place. And so anyway, uh, Dusty, I, I'm trying to, you know, I had the referee go over to the side of the ring to tell Dusty not, to watch it because it was real slick while dusty jumps in the fucking ring his feet go up and down on his ass he goes and uh the people were laughing and they, they went from cheering to laughing and so i said oh fuck 
So anyway, we get the match started. We only went four or five, maybe six minutes at the most. And uh, after about two minutes, Dusty says, throw me out of the ring, throw me out of the ring. So I throw, throw him out of the ring. He's out there. What does he do? Pulls the blade out, gasps himself. And the people in the front row, the fans, they were all standing up by the uh, rail. You know, they, they had a fence around the ring. Dusty, you don't have to blade yourself tonight, you know? And uh, so he down there, blade comes up bleeding all over the place. And the fans, the fans knew what the fuck was going on in uh, Miami back in those days. And uh, what was that, 1980? 78. Oh, 78, yeah. So anyway, uh, he gets back in the ring, and we're going around and punching each other, kicking each other, whatever. And uh, I can't remember how wound up. I think I put him over, I think, because that was his territory. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, and then uh, I vaguely remember Superstar and Harley because they, they, they went on last. Right. And uh, I remember Monsoon being the referee. Yeah, they, yeah, him and Don Curtis. I guess they had to have a Florida guy and a WWF guy or for whatever reason. Well, is that what it was? Yeah. yeah, I think they wanted one person from each office, one person from Eddie Graham's office, one person from the McMahon office. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. I'm actually looking it up now. Yeah, I think that's the one in Tampa, right? Was where they did it. No, Miami. Miami, okay. Yeah, yeah the one I was in was in Miami. And they also, I know they had one in Tampa where it was Dusty and Harley in the stadium there. That that one was 1980. That was a little bit later. Okay. But um, so you came back now when you came back to the WWF later on um, in the in the later 80s when they had you working as a baby face and all that. And now Gorilla was still there, but he wasn't, you know, it was a different era. It was Vince Jr.'s time and Gorilla yeah. was the announcer. Did he still have a lot of the same responsibilities then or were he, was he strictly an announcer by that point? Uh, he had some locker locker room uh, responsibilities, you know, for especially for towns that he he uh, promoted. But uh, yeah, pretty much everything had changed by then. And uh, and then when when I came back, I had that big feud uh, with Bobby Heenan. Yes, uh, and uh, I think that was. Uh, that was my third run in there, third run for the WWF. Yes, it was. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, I I, I was going to get rid of all those henchmen that worked for Heenan because they, they jumped me and, you know, beat me with the uh, belt strap and uh, everything. I think, goddamn, it was Harley and Hercules and... Um, was, was King Andre. Kong Bundy or maybe even Andre because Andre was with Heenan then too oh that this is before that though oh okay yeah I know yeah. that um, 
you when when they brought you back and you had the kind of like debate with Bobby Heenan in the ring where they had you uh you know where where Bobby hurt his neck um I remember I have to tell you that I I was a kid at the time and that's kind of when I first started becoming a fan so the funny thing is I didn't I was such a kid that I didn't know that you used to be the bad guy because I wasn't watching then you'd been gone for a while so you came right. And now, and the thing that Vince kept saying over and over was, Ken Patera has paid his debt to society. Ken Patera yeah. is now, you know, one of the good guys. And I just remember, I just, uh, I, I was completely on board. That was one of my favorite things on, on the show was, was this idea. I, I just, I'm 12 years old. And I said, oh, this guy, you know, he paid his debt and now he's here and he's walking the straight and narrow. And I remember the thing with Bobby Heenan was one of the, First times that I ever got really like sucked in because they did the thing where supposedly what Bobby was saying was so bad that they bleeped it out. They wouldn't even air it on television. Yeah. 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 Those, those were that, that was a uh, fun run until about six months before I finally retired. Uh, I finally confronted Vince. I said, Vince, I said, I know I hurt my elbow. I, I detached the tricep tendon off my elbow. I dislocated my left shoulder. Uh, I had, you know, three three bad injuries there in about a year. And uh, so Pat Patterson comes to me one day at TV and says, and I asked Pat, I said, what's going on here, Pat? Tell, you know, tell me the truth. He said, well, Vince thinks that you're injury prone. Mm. And if you're in, you know, he's thinking that way, his mentality. He doesn't think he can count on you for any length of time without you getting another injury. I said, those were freak fucking injuries. And he said, well, yeah, I know. And anyway, uh, about a week after that, I confronted Vince uh, at a show, you know, privately. I said, Vince, you know, you're treating me like a fucking liability. and I still feel like I'm an asset. And I don't appreciate the, the way you're uh, working, working me uh, now. You're slowly... Moving me out of the limelight, spotlight, whatever. Right. Well, they had you doing all jobs to just about everybody by that point. Yeah. One Man Gang, Bad News Brown, Dino Bravo, just whoever. Yeah. Well, that was my idea. Oh. Yeah. I, I told him, I says, if you want me out of the spotlight here, out of the the uh, I said, I'll just uh, retire. I said, I've had enough of this shit. I said, anybody you want over, I'll put over it right in the middle of the ring. I said, I don't care if it's King Kong, Bundy, uh, Hercules, Dino, Bravo, uh, it, it does, uh, Bad News, Brown, anybody that you think you need to get over, I'll put them over. And that's how that happened. So I, I, I did jobs for like four or five months. 
Is it yeah. true that the that they were thinking of having you and Hogan for WrestleMania? Because I've heard that rumor. Uh well, before I started doing the job. Before that, right. That they originally envisioned you'd come back as a good guy. You'd do the thing where you're teaming with Hogan and, and then you'd turn on him and then they'd have a big WrestleMania main event. Yeah, well, that was uh, until I had to go to prison when, when uh, I got in that trouble with all those cops over in Wisconsin, yeah. uh, Mr. Saito and I, um, we were still wrestling in the AWA at that time. That was 1984. And so then we go to trial a year almost a year and a half after that happened, they finally have the trial. That fucking judge uh, and the DA were both up for re-election. So that was a railroad job. It was a fuck job. Uh, so, so you were in the, you were still with the AWA when that, when the whole incident went down, but then it took so long by the time all that happened, you were in the WWF. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was, uh, because they, nobody thought that that was going to amount to anything. Nobody expected me going to prison for two fucking years. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest, uh, uh, sentence that they'd ever given on something like that was like 60 days, you know, 30 days, 60 days and like a two, $300 fine. That was it. And but they wanted to make an example of Mr. Saito and Kent Patera, these two monster bad guys coming down from Mars and beating up their police department. And so uh, that that's how. Oh yeah, they they wrote a negative article in their fucking Waukesha newspaper every week, every fucking week, about you know uh, how the the judge and the DA should throw these guys in jail and throw the key away. You know, the bullshit stuff, you know. And uh, there was this one uh, journalist from the Chicago paper, Royko. His name was Royko, and he had national exposure. And uh, he saw a deal in there to help his career a little bit because he was an older guy at the time. Right. He just buried us. I, I wanted to kill that motherfucker. And uh, so so anyway, we had all this publicity and uh, against us, negative. So we wind up in prison. Yeah. So. Yeah, I saw, you know, I saw you uh, uh, last year on the Tales from the Territories episode talking about it. I thought that was a great episode. I thought you were really good on that on that show. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that fucking Greg Gagne and Jimmy Brunzel, they, even Medusa opened her fat mouth. And I told them, I said, you sons of bitches, you, you fuck up one time, one time in your life. You go to prison and you, because of the railroad job to begin with. And... uh so, uh, and then uh, you motherfuckers sit here, bad mouth, Ken Pater, accusing me of actually throwing that rock through the window, which I never did. You, you assholes weren't there. You know, I know what the fuck happened. 
because you know it was like twelve o'clock at night. Uh, and so anyway, that really pissed me off. If supposedly my friends turn on me, you know, fuck them. They kind of <laughs> ganged up on you on the show. It seemed like. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I still like them, you know, but the, <laughs> they just had open their fucking fat mouth and voice their opinion. Like what? Forty years after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It seemed like they were still they 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 still were uh, I don't know thinking about it a lot the way they yeah. they talked about it, it seemed like they really had a uh, a strong opinion that was different yeah. from yours. Yeah, they did have a strong opinion and it was a wrong opinion, but in their minds, you know, they thought you know because they knew me and. You know, they thought they could get away with it. Well, they didn't get away with it. <laughs> well, it made for good television. At least there's that. Yeah, it was real. Yeah. No, it, that was pretty clear. That was pretty clear. That was one of the better episodes because I thought, like, you know, it seemed like people, it seemed like a real conversation. It wasn't just just for TV, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, We've been talking for about an hour, and I, I'm sorry for taking so much of your time, but this has been really great. No, I uh, I hope I gave you enough insight to Gorilla. More than enough. I mean, the, the, and, and, and many other things. But also, thank you for the book, you know, for helping with that, because I really want to tell, I, I really want to give a picture of the real person, you know, behind the wrestling and everything else and what he was really like and everything. And, and all these stories from people like you are, are helping me do that. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. Uh, why don't we do a podcast? And we'll plug my book. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, well, why don't you, in case I wind up using this, why don't you tell me a little bit about it? So we could put that on there too. Oh yeah. It's called weight of the world. Ken Patera. Um, it was, uh, written by Kenny Casanova and, uh, but we originally started off with somebody that had just gone to work for Kenny. He had never written a book before, but, uh, you know, he seemed like, you know, intelligent guy. Well, his philosophy was a little different than mine. And, uh, you know, after four fucking years, Four fucking years I was, you know, doing uh, uh, this with this kid. Wow, that's a long time. Four years. Now, finally, I called Kenny Casanova. I said, Kenny, you're the one that originally agreed to this, and then you said you got busy uh, doing some other stuff. This guy had completely dropped the ball, and he's only got a couple hundred pages. I've given him a thousand pages of information and good knowledge and uh, he still can't get this thing out you know like his, i think his father-in-law got sick or died or something he moved from uh, new york down to north carolina and you know he had just switched jobs he had done this done that and uh, he, he just wasn't uh yeah he didn't he said his heart was in the project but it wasn't you know and so I called Kenny. I said, Kenny, we got to wrap this fucking thing up. 
you know, it's been 40 or four years. He said, God, has it been that long? I said, yes. I said, you know, fuck, I'm 79, almost 80 years old. And uh, I'd like to get this thing published and get it out. And so Kenny took the ball and he finished it up in about a month. And uh, and we're probably about 90% into the book. So we had like 10% left. And so uh, I talked to Kenny about it. He, he wrapped it up. It's not exactly what I wanted, but it was close enough. I said, fucking just get it published. And so I had Ric Flair uh, write the the intro to it or the foreword. And uh, Rick did a nice job on that. And then I had uh, Bobby Backlund uh, do a chapter. He did a good job. Uh, another friend of mine, Bruce Wilhelm, uh, uh, we competed against each other in the shop putting the weightlifting back in the uh, uh, 60s. And he did a hell of a job. He's the one that won that World's Strongest Men contest the first two years. And um, I still talk to Bruce all the time. I talked to Flair. Um, I talked to, I haven't talked to Bobby in about a year. He's somebody and, I'm going to want to talk to for this book also, for sure. Yeah, he'd be a good one. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby used to call me every month for two, three, four years. Always tell me that he appreciated working with me and if it wasn't for me that uh, I enhanced his career so much that uh, uh, he told me, I, he says, I, uh, I hope you don't mind, Ken, but I tell everybody that you're the one that really got me going. I said, well, I appreciate that. I remember uh, having Bobby's first match uh, in a little town down South Jersey. Not too far from Philly. God, what was the name of that place? I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. It, it was when they were first starting to build him towards the getting the title. That was it. His first match. First match off of TV. Old Bridge, New Jersey. Was that it? No. It was Wildwood? Wildwood. That's it. Found Wildwood, New Jersey. <laughs> And uh, I, I thought I'd, I told him in the locker room after the match, I said, Bobby, you got to slow down. I've had easier street fights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I worked with Bobby a lot, uh, getting him ready prior to the belt. I worked with him a lot after he had the belt, too. But well, uh, a lot of people think you gave him some of his best matches. I mean, you and and Adrian Adonis. I mean, there were a few people, yeah. but you're on that list for sure. Yeah, I uh, yeah, Wildwood, New Jersey. I'll never forget it. It was a gorgeous day. The building was about 190 degrees, and uh, it was just a little tiny uh, uh, cinder block building that they had just finished building. It was right on the beach, and uh, so uh, yeah, that that was fun. It was a little archaic, 
But yeah, I wrestled Billy Graham in the WWF when he was a champ. So they I wrestled heel versus heel then. Yeah, in Portland, Maine. And so the old man, you know, uh, Vince, Vince McMahon, uh, so he says, Kenny, what do you think about wrestling Billy Graham in Portland, Maine? I said, fuck yeah. I said, I'd love to. Because, I, you know, Billy and I had wrestled matches in the AWA. Then down in Texas, we'd do the arm wrestling, the weightlifting in the ring and you know, we have lumberjack matches and oh fuck, we did everything, and we sold out everywhere, especially in Dallas and Houston. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, I wrestled him in Portland, Maine, heel against heel. Shit, within two minutes, I was a fucking uh, heel, but Billy was a babyface. I mean, you know, and uh, fuck, we got double blood. And, you know, we, we went quite a while, 15, 20 minutes, something like that, 25. I, I don't remember exactly how long, but we tore the house down, completely sold out. And then uh, we we never wrestled again. They always wanted to like him. It always seemed like he was always on the verge of getting cheered and or getting turned or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Was there ever talk of of putting the belt on you? I mean, it seemed like it would have been a natural thing as a even as a transition or something. Yeah, I uh, earlier on uh, Bruno one wanted to drop the belt to me. And then I talked to Vince about it. And uh he says, "Well, Kenny said I'd love to put the belt on you, but you sell out everywhere without the belt. You don't need the belt." And he said, I made a deal with Eddie Graham down in Florida to bring uh, superstar Billy Graham in. So we're going to uh, have Bruno drop it to uh, Billy. And I says, wow, fuck, where does that leave me? And so anyway, uh, when when I left uh, and then I came back and, or no, when did I beat Patterson for the Intercontinental? Was that 80 or 81? Yeah, that was 80. So if I'm looking at this right, so you were there 76 into 78, and then you were gone for a while, and you came back basically at the very end of 79 and then into 80, and that's when you, they had you working with uh, Patterson and the IC yeah. belt and all that. Yeah, that's what it was. So Patterson supposedly wanted – tournament down in Rio de Janeiro, <laughs> a big tournament, you know. Sure. So in reality, let's get this straight. He never won the belt. Right. It was given to him. Well, didn't he beat, I think he beat DiBiase for what they were calling the North American title. Then they just kind of just changed the name of it. I think that's what happened. And the, and the the Rio de Janeiro thing was just kind of like a bullshit reason to, you know, explain why they changed the name of the belt. But he did beat, he beat, he did beat Ted DiBiase. Well, he didn't beat anybody for the intercontinental belt, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm the one that beat Patterson. So right. I'm the likely rightful owner of that fucking 
belt. There you know, any little belt. It was just a, oh, fuck. It wasn't a very nice-looking belt. I'm glad to hear you say that because, no, like I said, I've been watching some of these matches, and I thought the same thing. I was like, ah, eh, it's not that impressive-looking. No, it was a piece of shit. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know where in the fuck they found that goddamn thing. Now, you had that at the same time that you were also the Missouri champion in St. Louis at the same time. I was just going to mention that. I'm the only one in history to ever own the St. Louis belt and the Intercontinental belt at the same time. I'm the only one. Yeah. So you were kind of, you were just going back and forth then between St. Louis and New York, and I guess, at the time. Yeah. And I was going up to uh, Toronto for uh, Frank Tunney. And uh, shit, I was, I think I even went out and worked for, uh, uh paul bosch out in uh houston and yeah i was all over the fucking place and the, the only other guys that uh at that time that were uh doing that on a consistent basis was dusty superstar i think later on king kong bundy or king kong uh brody i broke i helped break brody in uh, back in uh, Texas, yeah, yeah, he was a young guy, you know, musclehead, uh, loved pumping iron. I met him at a fucking gym down in uh, San Antonio, uh, and he was in there pumping iron with four or five of his buddies. They were all big, burly bastards, you know, young, 23, 24 years old, and I think I was about 30. 30 or 31 at the time. So I, I was still pumping iron pretty good. Yeah. Well, you had, anyway. that, you had that name that you'd built up, you know, from everything you did before wrestling. So you came in and you were already a known commodity, you know, different from someone that had to come in as a total unknown and, and work their way up. You, you already had a name. Yeah, it, exactly. And the, I mean, that helped immensely. And uh, when I went in that gym down in San Antonio, I didn't know those guys were there, you know. And so I walk in, they're all, they just stopped and started staring at me. Are you Ken Patera? I said, yep. Jesus, hey guys, Ken Patera's here, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I got over big time with the weightlifters and, uh, the bodybuilders I'd known, I, I knew Schwarzenegger and Frigno and Colombo and Zane. I knew all those guys from Muscle Beach. And uh, I because I, I trained down there a little bit prior to going to the Olympic Games. But they, they really didn't have a place to train, Olympic lifting anyway, except for the downtown YMCA there in Los Angeles. So, you know, I was training there for about four months, maybe five months. And so I migrate over to Muscle Beach once in a while. And, uh, but I couldn't do any Olympic lifting at Gold's Gym because it was all bodybuilding. No. So I'd go over there and fuck around. Those guys were always smoking dope and, you know, None of them were beer drinkers. 
And so they'd smoke dope, I'd drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and then I, after that, I, uh, I went up to San Francisco and trained at uh, Alex's Sports Palace, who was owned by a, a friend of mine, Jim Schmitz, who wound, wound up, after I retired, after the Olympic Games, he wound up being the national weightlifting coach for several years after that. Yeah, so... Some story. I, uh, as you can tell, I could talk about this forever. So uh, don't don't get me going. I know you have other stuff to do today. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna let you go. But this is this has been great. I can't thank you enough. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Well, thanks for being a gracious host, and uh, I appreciate it. And maybe, uh, like you say, maybe we'll do. Uh, you, you're going to make this a uh, a broadcast. I think I would like to. I mean, I'll, I'll just use the sound. I don't. I don't use the video on. Yeah. Monday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, maybe uh, refresh it in a month or two. Yeah. And, we, sure. Yeah. Just you know, keep me posted, and we'll do it again. I will do that, Ken. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Right. There you have it, folks. My unexpected conversation with Ken Patera. And now that you've listened to it, I think you'll probably agree with me that it was very important that I share that with the world. There was no way that I could just keep that tucked away in a little file on the hard drive of my MacBook. That would have been a crime. That would have been a travesty. So I had to share it with you guys. I hope you appreciated it, despite, as I said, maybe some slightly spotty audio as compared to our usual standards of excellence here at Arcadian Vanguard. But thank you for listening. And thanks to Ken for coming on the show and for agreeing to allow me on the spur of the moment to use that conversation as a podcast episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you will continue to keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because we have some great guests in the weeks to come. Next week for episode 62, I've been promising this for a while now, but my guest will be Phil Schneider of TheRinger.com and, of course, of the Way of the Blade book and podcast. He will be the guest next week. Looking ahead to the weeks to come, we will also have people like Mike Clark from the Jack Tunney Toronto Wrestling Office. He'll be here, as well as Mary Freeze, the daughter of Pampero Furpo. Who still remembers Pampero Furpo? I do. And we do here at Shut Up and Wrestle, and that is why Mary will be on the show very soon, as well as Bob Smith, longtime London publishing and pro wrestling illustrated writer. He will be a guest. And a new one to mention, who I just spoke to recently, and I can't wait to share this one with you. I'm talking about Gennard Soli, the son of the Dean of Wrestling Announcers, Gordon Soli. That was an amazing conversation. Look forward to that in the weeks to come. While you're at it, go ahead and join the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. It's the place to be. 900 members going strong. Join up and be a part of them. It's where all the cool kids are. Join the group and find out why. While you're at it, check out the Wrestling News if you haven't already. Your daily morning audio newscast put together by the great Arcadian Vanguard team, including yours truly. Trust me, you will enjoy it. TheWrestlingNews.com, listen to it, subscribe to it. If you want to pick up copies of my book, 
blood and fire the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic you can get print digital or audio copies at amazon.com at barnes and noble.com or even a physical bookstore if you happen to find one you can still pick up copies of blood and fire you can also hear me on the pwi podcast which i co-host with al castle and you can find that one as well wherever you find your wrestling podcast and other kinds of podcasts and speaking of pwi pro wrestling illustrated magazine is a place where you can read the articles that i write each and every issue get those issues in print and digital form at pwi-online.com and as i mentioned at the top of the show inside the ropes magazine you can pick up print and digital copies of inside the ropes at inside the ropes magazine.com if you happen to be looking for me on social media you will find me on twitter and instagram at brian r solomon and you can also find my author page on facebook brian solomon writer and on any of those platforms you will find the link to my author web page out on the world wide web shut up and wrestle is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to gather ye rosebuds while ye may. So long, wrestling fans.